The Tokyo 2020 Olympics, which finally took place this past summer, were notable for many reasons, not least of which was the number of record-breaking child athletes who competed and won. One of them, 12-year-old Kokona Haraki of Japan, became the youngest Olympic medalist in 85 years when she won silver in the park skateboarding competition. The silver medalist in the street skateboarding event, 13-year-old Raisa Leal, was the youngest Brazilian to ever participate in the Olympic Games. These kids received a lot of attention from the traditional news media and across the internet, and rightly so. They're amazing. But while these wins gave them their first Olympic medals, it wasn't their first foray into the world of global media attention. In fact, a video of Leal skateboarding in a fairy costume at age seven was a global viral sensation a few years ago. Sports has a long and intricate relationship with the media, which is carried over to digital media as well. In addition to allowing sports coverage to reach a broader, more diverse audience, the depth, duration, and nature of that coverage has exploded in the online environment. Sports fans can keep up with their favorite leagues, teams, and athletes year-round, or even round the clock. While this puts new forms of pressure on athletes, it can also provide them with a power-shifting forum for voicing their opinions or controlling the narrative. Superstar athletes Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka both use social media to make sure their respective sides of their respective stories were at the forefront when considerable amounts of media and public attention were focused on each of them this past year. Sports and digital media are also linked in ways that specifically impact children. In many popular and academic discourses, beneficial physical play is presented as the opposite or even antidote to the much maligned digital play. Children's sports, especially organized sports, have served this type of ideological function for centuries, not only as a symbol of what constitutes as a good childhood, but as a reflection of the hegemonic culture and as a system that reproduces that culture's ideals and biases. Understanding the history of children's sports is therefore crucial for understanding contemporary ideas about childhood, how we got here, and where we're headed. Dr. Samantha White, Assistant Professor of Sports Studies at Manhattanville College and leading expert on children's sporting culture, is mapping that history. Her work fills critical gaps in our knowledge of children's roles in and experiences of sports, and how this intersects with race, gender, and class. Applying an interdisciplinary, child-centric approach, Dr. White's research combines historical and archival work with media and discourse analysis to uncover the hidden, but not lost, experiences and representations of Black children, and especially Black girls, in sports across the 20th century. The theories and arguments she's building with this work provide incredibly valuable insight into the modern construction of childhood, insight that disrupts the hegemonic historical narrative, and highlights the key role that Black girls have always played in American sports and leisure. Dr. White's research has been published in a number of journals, most recently in an article entitled Ebony Jr. and the Black Athlete, Meritocracy, Sport, and African-American Children's Media, which was published in the Journal of Sport History in 2020, and another entitled Black Girls Swim, Exclusion, Beauty, and Athleticism at YWCA Pools, which was published in Girlhood Studies in Interdisciplinary Journal in 2021. She also wrote the entry on sports in the Sage Encyclopedia of Children and Childhood Studies, published in 2020, 
and has been invited to present her research and lead workshops with academic and non-academic audiences, both nationally and globally. I'm Sarah Grimes, Director of the Knowledge Media Design Institute at the University of Toronto and host of the Critical Technology Podcast. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Samantha White about two of her recent published works, Ebony Jr. and the Black Athlete, and Black Girls Swim, to find out more about her ongoing research on children's complex relationship with sports and sports media. Let's just dive right in, no pun intended. What is children's sporting culture? For me, children's sporting culture is a really interdisciplinary look at the physically active sport, health, fitness cultures of young people. And this can include historical approaches or sociological approaches, even literary approaches, Um, but really looking at either these kind of informal sites of play, so pick up soccer games and playgrounds to even you know competitive um, sports leagues like competitive hockey leagues. For me, children's sporting culture is something that's really broad and looks at children as both participants, but also consumers of sport too, um, which is something that both of these articles explore. Um, so really thinking about uh, children's sporting culture is this really broad and encompassing way of thinking about how children navigate Um, physical activity, physical culture, and sport. And how I tend to approach this in my own research is looking at the ways that Black youth, particularly Black girls, engage in um, sporting culture. And I tend to do this from a historical perspective, um, maybe looking at the the 20th century, um, but thinking about how this includes everything from how Black children are engaging in sport media to how they're participating in in actual sports as um, competitors. And who is the Black girl athlete? What does her history tell us about sports, race, and gender? So the Black girl athlete, for me, has taken up different forms across historical and, and contemporary periods. But seeing how she's been a figure that's been shaped by not just these historical, social, and political processes, but also thinking about how she's shaped by things like race, class, and gender. Um, For me, the Black girl athlete is, in my own research, is anyone from a young 14-year-old Black girl who's participating in community sports at her local YWCA to moving more towards the contemporary moment, thinking about how even celebrity athletes like Venus and Serena Williams as, as girls also encompass the, the Black girl athlete. So looking at her as someone who is both represented um, in sporting environments, um, as well as one who's um, an active participant in sporting environments too. And for me, Black girl athletes are anyone from kind of casual uh, sporting, participate, or sporting participants to these elite athletes too. Um, so it's not based on athletic ability. Uh, I think anyone who wants to to be a black girl athlete can. And and this is, I was a pretty casual uh, black girl athlete. I played soccer, coached soccer, played lacrosse um, at both kind of recreational, a little bit of a competitive level. So it's also a way of me understanding kind of my own relationship to 
my, my own childhood attachment to these um, spaces. But she, she plays such an important role in sport if we're thinking about how navigating such a profoundly unlevel playing field for Black girl athletes, the sporting spaces aren't necessarily designed for them. Um, they're not necessarily built for them. I think sports in general tends to be coded as a, a really masculine endeavor, kind of like a, a boys club, and especially for thinking about the ways that also race is shaping this too. By analyzing and understanding the experiences of Black girl athletes, we can see how they are really fighting against exclusion, um, these exclusionary tactics in sport, but also how they've really fought for inclusion too, like making their own space, like taking up space in these sporting worlds. Why is it important to look at media and media representations when trying to better understand these relationships between children, sports, and society? Yeah, that's, that's such a great question. For me, sports media is such a, an interesting and fantastic and complex space, especially since sports media tends to be this, this really adult space in which experiences and perspectives or perspectives of children and youth tend to be excluded even when their representations are sometimes um, included in this in this sphere but I've found that even though children tend to be marginalized in the field of or area of sport media by digging a little bit deeper um, their their images are still there they still engage with sport media um, from everything to you know, thinking about how children and, and young people are, are watching, how they're participating in these major sporting events, uh, events like the Olympics, to um, even thinking about different magazines and, and publications that are geared towards uh, children and youth. But I think that it it has a really interesting role in not just kind of framing ideologies of sport for for young people. Um, for kind of shaping the way that um, we are supposed to think about sport, whether it's sport as this um, kind of universal good or sport as this patriotic or nationalistic enterprise. Like sport contains all these different ideologies and they're passed down to, to everyone, um, including young people. But also thinking about the ways that um, children are also kind of part of um, these images and representations of, of sports too and how they're kind of shaped into different symbols within these conversations too. Something you brought up in our previous conversation was the importance of bringing in Black press when doing archival research on children and sports or on childhood more broadly. Would you mind telling us about your methodological approach and how moving away from mainstream sources results in a richer and more inclusive understanding of cultural history and of Black history specifically? Definitely. So when I first started doing this research, I mean, the, the field of sport history is is fa fairly large um, and has been around for, for quite a long time. But the inclusion of children and youth in sport history is, is relatively small. Uh, and that is a problem that often historians of, of children and youth um, are confronted to when thinking about the sources of, of children and youth, like where can we find them in the archive? And as I started digging, I started thinking about where these sources could be. Like oftentimes they're not in traditional archives. Like I've gone to 
archives. I've, I've looked at records, and sometimes they're there, but they're not. There's not an extensive um, you know, collection on the experiences of, of Black children or Black girls in sport. For for both of these projects, I I relied on the the Black press quite a bit um, in different forms too. This includes thinking about the role of the the newspaper specifically, Black newspaper specifically, and the the Black press, and in researching. Black girls in sport within the Black press, so Black newspapers in the um, early 20th century, what I found was there were quite a bit of stories about their experiences. There was a, a, a woman, women in sport column in the Chicago Defender, a Black newspaper um, that was pretty much the, the national Black newspaper at the time. But what I found was these columns about women in sport that specifically included conversations and stats and coverage of black girls um, competing in community and high school sports. And looking at this national newspaper, um, seeing not just scores and and stats, but also images and representations, for me, that was a, a way of thinking of the archive as really, really expansive. Um, and also a bit more you know, accessible. Um, most of these sources are, are digitized. Um, so I was you know, able to code these newspapers, look through them, search pretty broadly across a wide spectrum of, of newspapers um, without having to travel across the country to, to all these different archives. Um, but thinking about the, the role of the, the Black press and, and Black media more broadly, it's, I think, an important way of thinking about how we can approach sources differently, like how we can ask different conversations or different or ask different questions about our sources, ask where the voices of children and youth are, um, ask where the voices and experiences of, and representations of Black children and youth are, especially for thinking about athletics and sport and the way that uh, these sources can be used to, to really find their histories that are often um, left untold. In your work, you draw on letters to the editor quite a bit, and you seem to be hinting at that in your response just now. Do you want to talk a little more about how these traditional forms of user-generated content can reveal and enable us to discover these voices and perspectives? Absolutely. So these these letters to the editor are extremely important because they're not necessarily from a, a sports writer. Um, like these columns on you know, women and girls in sport are, are coming generally from sports writers at these publications versus these letters to the editor, they, they may be you know, most likely mediated to a certain extent, but they are from the, the voice of the, the child who is consuming this media, reading these publications, you know, for in the case of Ebony Jr., you know, reading these magazines and writing letters and as I was reading these letters to the editor, um, everything from a you know a child responding to a piece that they really like, really excited that they saw Hank Aaron on the cover of the newspaper, um, or a girl talking about the importance of sports in, in her life, I was really excited to you know play basketball or, or swim at the pool, and really noting the the activities that shaped her daily life, like getting a good, good understanding of how children are not only kind of responding to these adult athletes that they're seeing on the cover of the magazine, but also using the space of the letter to the editor to document and talk about and even analyze their own relationship to sport. I found these letters to the editor 
really, really fascinating. Um, as well as the, the pictures that um, the parents and, and guardians would, would send in too. In an issue of Ebony Jr. in which Tiger Woods is in the publication, like his dad sent a, a picture of him in, uh, this is in the early 80s. And again, like really thinking about the, the power of these you know, images in the magazine, like because the letter is to the editor and the submissions for parents were kind of like side by side. but. Um, also kind of like going back and thinking about the childhood history of you know, these major celebrity athletes. And I was, I was not expecting to, to see him in Ebony Jr. Um, just because most of these athletes aren't, didn't, or child athletes didn't end up being, you know, famous athletes. Yeah, it was, it was a really, uh, interesting and, and fun archival find. A key focus in your article about Ebony Jr. magazine, and something that also emerges in the Black Girls Swim article, is the centrality of meritocracy in the social construction of Black children's sports and sporting practices, which you describe as reflective of broader cultural trends and discourses. What does meritocracy look like in the context of children's sports cultures, and what types of ideologies, relationships, or social systems did or does this idea promote? I still feel like meritocracy is a huge problem in, in children's sport today. Uh, the um, idea of meritocracy is, is deeply rooted in individualism. And it's this idea that if you work hard in sports and if you, you know, practice a ton and everyone has the same opportunities, like these are the, the kind of ideas that center around meritocracy, um, that you can achieve everything by your own accord and it's a completely level playing field. And these ideas are, they were, and they still are very prevalent and toxic in the field of children and, and youth sports. And in both of those pieces, I point to how sports isn't a meritocracy at all. Sports aren't neutral. They're shaped by um, access to income, um, access to certain incomes. Race shapes the ways that you, you know, participate in sports and navigate sports. Um, gender, class, sex, sexuality, ability, all of these things shape participation and engagement with sport. Which is why I find the idea of meritocracy really problematic in both the historical um, and the contemporary aspect. But especially in the Ebony Junior magazine, what I found in my research was that oftentimes the idea of meritocracy really rested front and center. Um, it, it's present in the Black Girl Swim article, but I see it really kind of exploding in Ebony Jr. Um, and I think that's also reflective of the time period. Ebony Jr. is published during 1970s, early 1980s. There is, you know, more more of a rise in after-school sports during this time. Um, Title IX is passed in, in 1972, so we see more girls starting to become involved in sports. So. The idea of meritocracy is, is really kind of embedded in the sports um, landscape by this time. Um, and Ebony Jr. really leans into this. Um, I don't fault them completely. Like, I, I see why that was an important kind of idea to lean into, especially thinking about the ways that the rhetoric of natural athleticism was this really harmful pseudoscientific idea that Black athletes are just naturally good at sport, which is a, a really harmful idea that is being debated um, in magazines during the time of Ebony Jr.'s publication. Um, Ebony, the adult publication, um, is 
they're you know kind of shining a light on his harmful rhetoric. Sports Illustrated during the 60s and 70s, they're also kind of debating this in their, their sport pages. So when I see that Ebony June is really kind of leaning into meritocracy really hard in order to kind of combat the stereotype, um, but at the same time, by leaning into this idea, they the magazine also moves away from kind of pointing out the ways that uh, systemic oppression is really embedded in, in sporting spaces too, which they're you know, adult publication, their adult magazine, um, Ebony does a really great job of. Um, but for child readers, the editorial um, staff seems to have made a, a really intentional decision to kind of move away from those conversations and really just focus on this, this discourse of, of meritocracy. Something that really stood out for me when I first read the Ebony Jr. article is your concept of spectacular sports. I know you coined this term in reference to the magazine's own use of the word spectacular on this one specific cover, but it feels like there are also links to other theories about sports and spectacle, or even Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle, particularly in relation to your discussions of class and consumer culture as fundamental parts of what makes a sport spectacular. So what are spectacular sports, and what function do they fill in children's sports media, sporting practices, and in the everyday lives of Black children? So for me, the Ebony Jr. cover on spectacular sports really helped ground some of these conversations that I wanted to have in the article, but also thinking about broadly in terms of what these spectacular sports are and the impact of Black children who are reading the magazine, but also participating in these sports too. So Ebony Jr. had names um, and also provided images and a bit of content along um, with the definition of spectacular sports, um, but had noted how you know, swimming and, and ja- gymnastics were, were these spectacular sports. Um, and I think mainly because these are sports that weren't part of the, the mainstream sporting culture. They weren't basketball, they weren't track and field, they weren't football or American football. Swimming, um, for black athletes, even though it was it could get into the mainstream white sporting culture, swimming for black, black athletes wasn't necessarily mainstream. Um, although I note in my article on Black Girls Swim how there had been a long history of Black girls' participation in the sport, as far as a, a wide mainstream sporting culture, swimming did not necessarily fit into that category. So it did emerge as a spectacular sport. Um, in addition, gymnastics is also a spectacular sport because of both its special stature, it's not considered mainstream, um, but also the, the class dynamic too. So thinking about swimming and gymnastics as sports that are widely reserved for you know middle to, to upper class families. Um, so spectacular sports are coded um, in terms of, of class. Also kind of inaccessibility runs through um, these kind of definitions or ways that you know, spectacular sports are, are shaped. But in both the, the cover and the magazine, I was really struck by how young eight to 10 year olds were the ones who were kind of front and center. And I think it's a really important project in thinking about the importance of representation uh, by showcasing young black girls who are participating in these sports in which 
um, at the time, there weren't a ton of black girls at, on a national or international stage participating in, in swimming or gymnastics. So I think on one hand, these spectacular sports are about a kind of conspicuous consumption project um, for you know, families and, and parents, um, as well as kids who are you know, reading and engaging with this magazine. But at the same time, it's also about the importance of representation in sports that tend to be exclusionary um, and lack representation of Black girl athletes across these sports. This segues well to my next question, which relates to the Black Girl Swim article, which focuses on a specific spectacular sport, swimming. In this work, you delve even more deeply into the relationship between dominant discourses about Black children and swimming and the embodied experiences of real girls navigating and challenging the racist policies and rhetoric surrounding pools, swimming, and sports more generally in the early to mid-20th century. In particular, your discussion of embodied respectability and the emphasis placed on beauty and aesthetics builds a really innovative and rich theoretical framework for understanding these relationships. Would you mind describing what this term means and how you've used it to create a dual-level analysis of cultural discourses and practices? Absolutely. For me, embodied respectability was something that I noticed was coming across really strongly when I was in the archive and reading through reports or reading through program materials about the experiences of Black girls swimming in uh, across YWCA's or Young Women's Christian Associations um, in the urban north during the uh, 1920s and 1940s. Because it wasn't just about the act of, of swimming, um, but I noticed that there were all of these conversations happening um, about their bodies, the presentation of their bodies, how they had to, to look, look a certain way. Um, there was a particular emphasis on how their hair needed to be presented after they, they left the, the pool. Um, and all of these kind of acts, all these ways of, you know, shaping and, you know, disciplining and adorning the body, um, seems like it wouldn't necessarily be a kind of a, a function or a, a highlight of their physical, physical education or physical activity or sporting practices, but it, it really was. Um, and this focus on aesthetics like wasn't just a, a vanity project, but as I found in my research, um, it was also a way of um, kind of confronting and using whatever tools that they had um, to Kind of speak back against racist rhetoric that deemed their body unhealthy or unhygienic, which is a rhetoric that really permeated a lot of conversations around the pool, more so than any other physical activity, like as far more so than you know, tennis or um, basketball. There was something about being in the pool that that really kind of raised all of these you know, racist fears and, and rhetoric around the, the black body um, and the, the health of the black body. So reading these you know, reports from national organizations that are, are documenting the, the systemic discrimination that Black girls are facing as they try to you know, enter these pools during this time, um, I read and analyzed that, but also was noting the ways that Black organizations and Black girls were also kind of finding what, whatever means, whatever tools that they had to kind of show that 
their bodies were healthy, their their bodies um, were beautiful. They were using all of these tools to you know, show that both in and out of the pools, like this is a, a respectable body. Um, so for me, embodied respectability was something that I found was, was incredibly relevant to thinking about the ways that black girls navigated the sport of swimming um, during this time. But I, it's something that also applies, I think, more widely to thinking about sport and, and health and athletics for black girls, um, thinking about the, the ways that the politics of respectability really informs how they're not only participating, but also how they're received in sporting spaces too. What are the implications of all this for the black children who are consuming sports media and practicing sports during the time periods covered in your research? Yeah, so I think this has really major implications. If I'm thinking about the time period in which I talk about in Black Girls Swim, thinking about the early 20th century, um, and this is a time in which the landscape of, of girls' sports is finally starting to emerge um, and more girls are going to high schools, more girls are going to college. And as I look at um, in my larger research, looking at black girls who are at high schools, um, but also historically black colleges, like there, there's a, a rise in um, black girls participating or kind of the emergence of black girls participating in sport um, during this time. And the implications of seeing how embodied respectability, like this way of kind of navigating you know, racist assumptions about the body is really key for black girls who are participating in sports during this time, um, as well as kind of the rest of the 20th century and, and even today. But um, I think it's, it's really poignant, especially during the early 20th century, in which while the field of girls sports is starting to you know, emerge and explode, oftentimes this is kind of looked at as something that is kind of geared towards white girls and, and white women, uh, which is why I think these representations are so key. Like one, understanding the black girls have a long history in participating in sports at the community or recreation and, and competitive level, but also pointing to the ways that they are, um, their experiences are shaped by you know, racism um, and sexism, uh, as well as classism. But even as it's really important to name those uh, systemic oppressions that they're fighting against, um, but also highlight the, the the joys that they're experiencing in these spaces, like highlight the ways that they're making a, a claim for themselves in these sporting spaces, whether it's swimming um, or whether that's you know, other sports during this time, basketball, track and field, etc. Um, I think it's, it's really important to note the ways that they are also front and center um, in some of these publications as a way of not just, you know, identifying their representation, but also showing that they're, like, they are present in the archive, like they have been a, a part of sport media for, for such a long time. Um, and really thinking about the, the importance of centering Black girls in historical sport media um, and kind of using that as a roadmap to, to move forward, like thinking about what these representations look like today, like what kind of cultural work they do for um, young people who you know, are participating in sport or, or watch it on, on TV or, or want to um, coach one day, like really thinking about the, the ways that these representations like do serve as a, can serve as a roadmap. 
We're recording this interview at the tail end of the Tokyo Summer Olympics, where young Black women and girls of color have been at the center of a substantial amount of the sports media coverage circulating in the U.S., in Canada, and worldwide. What else does your work on the history of Black girl athletes tell us about contemporary children's sporting cultures and experiences? So I think the important thing is to use the history of Black girls' participation and representation in sport cultures is to really frankly just show that they have a, a long history of, of being here. I think that sport, the, the world of sports, um, and that includes sport media, tends to, to downplay um, and marginalize their experiences. But really by showing that Black girls have been participating in a wide range of sports, They've been present in sport media. They have been you know, at the, the center of these conversations. Um, I think that's a really important way of laying the foundation for understanding the experiences of contemporary girl athletes today, and especially thinking about the ways that the Olympics tends to kind of shape our ideas and conversations around young athletes, particularly young Black girl athletes. Just thinking back to the, not just you know, Tokyo Olympics, but the, the last couple Olympics in which black girls really have been um, front and center. I think about you know, Gabby Douglas and, and Simone Biles as you know, gymnasts, young, younger gymnasts, really kind of showing the, the impact of representation um, in a sport that has been pretty dominantly white for, for quite some time um, and the ways that they are really changing the, the landscape and of you know, who is imagined to be um, a gymnast and that gymnasts don't necessarily you know, have to, to look a certain way. Or, um, but at the, at the same time, I think these Olympics have been really important for showing the ways that athletes such as um, Simone Biles have really shown the importance of agency and, and really saying no um, and like looking out for the, the health of their bodies and minds. And I think that's a really important lesson, not just for um, adults, but also for, for young people who are, who are watching these Olympics too. I'm also keeping an eye on the Paralympics. Um, and that's something that I begun to follow more closely, but also looking at the ways that I, as a scholar of childhood, youth and sport, um, I think we continually need to be thinking about who's included and really thinking about the ways that disability studies is also a really important um, part of sport too. I'm going to shift gears a bit and ask you a question I'm asking all my guests this season. The United Nations recently adopted a new general comment confirming and outlining how children's rights apply in the digital environment. Do you think this will have any impact on children's sporting cultures or on children's relationships with sports media? So as far as thinking about children's relationship to structured and organized sport, I'm actually not entirely sure it will have an effect. Um, I think there's such little kind of connection with the digital sphere. I, I don't really see it having a big impact. However, kind of moving away from organized and structured sport and thinking about physical culture and fitness. Um, I, I think it, it might have an impact. I've been following conversations on the role of social media um, in terms of thinking about you know, body image. Um, and earlier this summer, 
Pinterest banned all you know, weight loss ads um, and cited young people as one of the reasons. So there have been really interesting conversations about the way that digital environments are impacting body image, fitness, diet of young people, specifically girls, um, and seeing these big companies um, like Pinterest take steps to, to regulate it um, is really interesting. And I'm curious as to whether other social media platforms will do the same. Um, but I think that is one way that I see the um, general comment playing into my research and not just thinking about sports but also physical activity, fitness in the body more generally and thinking about how these harmful diet culture um, and even, you know, which connects to fitness um, ideas, or ideologies about the, uh, the right kind of body and how they're disseminated to young people. Um, I, I think they, they have great stakes for the, not just physical, but also mental health of, of children. Um, so I think that is one area where it does touch on some of the, the themes I address in my own research. A big thanks to Professor White for joining us today. Please follow the links in the podcast description to find out more about Dr. White's research, her recent articles, and the other publications mentioned in today's episode, as well as information on where to send your questions or comments. The Critical Technology Podcast is produced by me, Sarah Grimes, with support from the KMDI. Audio mix and sound design by Mika Sestar. Music by Nicholas Manolo. Theme song by Tycoon Park. Our logo was designed by J.P. King, and the artwork for today's episode was created by Kenji Toyuka. Please subscribe to stay up to date on new episodes and posts as they become available, and thank you for listening.